Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is a freezing and snowy start to the week as we edge ever nearer to some more good news about getting back to normal. After last week's predictions that the economy will bounce back strongly later this year, we're now hearing noises about more taxes for online businesses that have done so well. Not the greatest idea anyone ever had. The whole point of this government is that it gave away a load of money which it didn't have. The whole point of this government is that it always knew that they would have to try and recoup that money uh, because they didn't have it in the first place to give it away. Do you see what I'm saying? But the answer is not to put more taxes on people. The answer is to spend more money to boost the economy so that people get back to work, people spend more money, the economy recovers, and Bob's your uncle. I've been arguing this for a very long time. Uh, I don't expect the government to put a spanner uh, in the works. We're also hearing uh, about a vaccine amnesty this morning for illegal immigrants who could register for a COVID jab without risking anything else happening to them. Now, some people think there's about 1.3 or possibly 1.5 million people in this country illegally. I actually think this is a pretty good idea idea because if people come to register in a local GP surgery with the promise that nothing is going to happen to them at least we will finally know precisely how many people are here because at the moment I don't think the home office has got a scooby if you know what I'm saying. We're kicking off this morning with a look at the recent statistics with Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics. Things are continuing to head in the right direction, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so we want to hear from you all as well. Are you snowed in? Are you back at work? What are you hearing? Seemed a bit quiet out there this morning. 0344 499 Coming up later on, Peter Hitchens joins us from the Mail on Sunday. This is also the week he goes head-to-head with Dan Hodges right here on Talk Radio TV. We'll get his latest take on the state of play. This weekend, he was accused of picking fights because of the hate crime, as he called it, of asking for evidence. Extraordinary. And Stuart Weir joins us as well in a big week for the Scottish National Party as former uh, First Minister Alex Salmon prepares to give evidence before a committee of inquiry tomorrow. His former protégé, Nicola Sturgeon, will appear next week. What is it all about? And could it really bring her down? 0344 499 1000. Also, we'll be taking another look uh, at universities in this country because as if you didn't know, right, it turns out uh, that there's a load of uh, individual academics who are being investigated because of their uh, possible assistance in helping China to build weapons of mass destruction. Now, I told you last week I thought it would be a great idea if we'd ever bothered reopening universities because they are places uh, where our young people get basically indoctrinated uh, into thinking ridiculous thoughts and into becoming complete and utter snowflakes. Now it turns out uh, we're also helping China. Great. Well done. Brilliant. Congratulations. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very good morning to Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics. Jamie, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. You good? Yeah, very well indeed. Welcome back. How are things in snowy Wales? Well, we've kind of missed the snow, actually. Obviously, we've we've had a couple of um, dustings over the last few weekends before, but um, yeah, we've we've been kind of lucky this time. Oh, that's good. Now, looking at uh, the figures, which are an awful lot better than the last time you and I spoke, I think you were predicting that this was probably going to happen. Tell us what you've seen uh, the most recent statistics showing. Yeah, so obviously the the country's kind of in this uh, lockdown, and we're looking for some hope. So the good news. Let's start with all the good news then, and. So cases, I've put a, a kind of a map up on my Twitter profile, just looking at what the situation was in terms of the percentage of COVID tests coming back positive about uh, in the seven days to the 2nd of January. And then I've put one to the other side on the same uh, on the same tweet to look at the, the cases in the seven days to the 2nd of February. And yeah. I kind of looked at the, the, the kind of the rates and coloured the map in in regards to 
when it's more green, we're seeing kind of the green shoots of recovery, I suppose. And and generally, Mike, everywhere across the country is improving. We're seeing kind of that massive surge that we had in London and the southeast. Um, possibly there was, there was a lot of discussion about this variant. Mm. Well, cases have come down dramatically in London and the southeast. They've come down across all parts of the country as well, in the north, the southwest, Wales, etc. So we're seeing some really good improvement. Now, I think what's actually interesting as well, when you do look at the data, though, there are some pockets, Mike, where things have actually got a little bit worse over the last month. And, and if you think in Wales, we went into a, a kind of a national lockdown, I think, on the 20th of December, and there was very few cases on the Isle of Anglesey, which has got kind of got a little bit of a bridge, you could say. It's got its own little uh, border there yes. in terms of trying to stop people going in. But Anglesey's actually got worse. So so it could well be that um, things are improving across the country. A few areas have got worse. But it's surprising, I suppose, that if, if lockdowns are that brilliant at stopping the virus spread, then there's some parts of, like, say, North Wales have got worse since we've yeah. had lockdown. Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, we've seen in the last week the Isle of Man completely lifting restrictions altogether. People back in pubs drinking, uh, people basically not in lockdown at all anymore. So it's strange, isn't it, that uh, you could do that in the Isle of Man, but you can't do it somewhere like Anglesey? Well, obviously, the, there's the, they, they've got on top of things on the Isle of Man. I think the, the thing we should probably look at, Mike, as well as just the cases, is what's kind of happening within hospitals and what's happening with the deaths. So, so if we look at the facts on on kind of the deaths that are talked about on the news every mm. single day, so there's no hiding from the fact that deaths are higher than they are for the time of year normally. Um, we've had about five and a half thousand deaths for the latest week that we saw above average. Now, the total number of COVID deaths in the same week was higher than that. So it does give us some indication, the latest data, Mike, that. Uh, there are people sadly dying with COVID at the moment who probably would have died anyway. And, and obviously every death is a tragedy regardless of things. Now, if we also look at the kind of the age profile of these deaths, now 83% of all the deaths in the latest week for people over the age of 70, and actually it's, it's four in 10 over the age of 85. Now, one of the other things that I think we haven't really learned much from the first wave back in March is that Again, and it's been consistent practically every single week that that one in five of all of the deaths that we've got at the moment are occurring in care homes. And since the start of March last year, Mike, that's 25,000 people have died in care homes. That excludes all the people who have caught the virus perhaps in a care home and then gone into hospital and died. So I think for me, it's all about those lessons learned that we need to look at. Because I don't think, sorry, you know, sadly, care home residents have been popping to the supermarkets to pick up you know groceries etc they are a lot of these care homes have been locked down so mm. sadly this the virus is getting in we've got a huge amount of death still going on in care homes and i'm just i think we've made the point to you before surely some targeted efficient testing would have been far more efficient to save lives well you would think so because i mean the other thing that i find interesting jamie is that you know last year we were having a lot of conversations with people about the way these figures have been put together and you're a statistician so you can you can help me with this i mean basically it's now been accepted by almost everyone uh, including those in the government and and those uh, who formerly used to criticize the government that basically the 100,000 death figure is not in any way to be challenged not in any way to be uh, asked questions about when in fact we know uh, it may well be that because you got a COVID test positive 28 days before you died, therefore you're counted as a COVID death, you know, um, that does not necessarily mean that every single death was caused by COVID, does it? No. And then so that, so I think that the best metric to actually use is when you look at how many deaths are kind of registered or occur in a week. And then you can compare that to what would we have expected that to have been 
if there was no kind of virus in in the kind of the community yes. at the moment. So if you go if back, it, to the if first it was just wave, a regular winter, I suppose you might say, right? Yeah, if it was a regular winter. Now, if we go back to the first wave back in the spring, because we weren't testing many, actually the government's official number they were publishing every day was pro was actually an undercount of what mm. was going on because we didn't know that people were dying of this virus and they were then being picked up with the death certificates. So the first wave, we were undercounting things. But for the second wave, uh, because there's so much testing going on, we're probably overcounting. So in the latest week, there was about, say, five and a half thousand deaths over and above average for the time of mm. year. They were actually in the same week, eight and a half thousand COVID deaths. So that suggests that there were kind of deaths that are occurring at the moment, Mike, that probably would have occurred anyway. Somebody may have sadly had, say, cancer and test positive for COVID. Right. They are included in the official government number, uh, which is published every single day. But I think we should focus more on that excess deaths. It is above average for the time of year at yes. the moment. But this is uh, the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the business of trying to dismiss the, the disease or say it's not as important uh, or dangerous as it is. But I just think it would be much more helpful if we had more accuracy in reporting and more accuracy from politicians. Because every politician I hear now on uh, the radio or on the television, whether they're Labour, Lib Dem, SNP or, or Tory, they all use this 100,000 figure as some kind of uh, benchmark of how terrible it all is. Well, I, I, no, I agree, Mike. And I think one of the things that I'd like to see a bit more transparency on is that, and we've talked about this in the past, the number of people who've um, gone into hospital without COVID, mm. and obviously they're more vulnerable because they've gone in and they're ill, and they're catching the virus within hospitals. And, and in some weeks, that's up to like one in five of yes. all the admission. And then they're dying. And, and ultimately, that potentially is a death that could have been saved. Obviously, a lockdown doesn't really help with regards to that because you've gone in without COVID. Well, and exactly. In and I think we so know think from, from the figures from last year that 26,000 people, uh, I believe, contracted COVID in hospital since September up to December. That's a big number. Yeah, and if you put in um, Wales as well and the latest few weeks, that's you know it's going to be well over 30,000 mm. people now. Yeah. And we know they are far more vulnerable, Mike. So, so I think in terms of the hope now as we go forward, we've we've talked about the number of deaths and the, and the age. So 83% of deaths are among people over the age of 70. Yeah. We've got over 12 million people had the first dose of the vaccine. Over half a million people have had the second dose of the vaccine. So we would be hoping now that with this vaccine rollout, with cases coming down across the country, that we're in a position where we should look to start easing some restrictions in the coming weeks. Now, I've heard a lot of people and, and people are kind of messaging me on Twitter as well, saying this new variant, maybe we shouldn't unlock, etc. We should continue to carry on with where we are. Now, in Wales, we've already hit the metrics. Um, there's a basket of different metrics that you would use to decide if you reduce restrictions. Two of those have been met that we should reduce restrictions based on the kind of the government guidelines. Mm. I think if we're going to talk about kind of variants and things, we're going to be in lockdown forever because obviously we know COVID isn't going anywhere. Right. And ultimately, if things are improving across the country, we've got this vaccine rollout, which will reduce the pressure on the NHS. We've got to have some hope. You know, I'm, I'm a coach of um, a kids football team and they haven't played football, Mike, now for, for several months. Right. And, they, you know, it's not good for all these children's mental health. No. Well, I mean, I mean, my, my son went out and, and got his sledge out of the loft and went and did a bit of sledging with his mates yesterday. Uh, but that's the first time he's seen them, I think, in about two months. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just the kind of the COVID deaths. They're all tragic. You know, that's, that's one thing that we get talked about every single day. There's that other thing, and you've talked about kind of the taxes on online businesses, is the is kind of the furlough scheme. So if we actually do kind of look at the economic effect of all of this as well, Mike. So if you look at December's data, mm. 
we've got 800,000 fewer people on payrolls than we had a year earlier. So that's 800,000. 800,000. See, that's nearly a million people, isn't it? Yeah. And, and well, on top of that, at the same point in December, there were over 1 million people on the furlough scheme as well. So, and that's cost us at the moment about 46 billion pounds. And hopefully we will get the economy kicking off again. But I would imagine there's going to be sadly some of those furlough jobs that aren't ever going to return. Mm. So we're going to probably be over a million people who've lost their jobs through this pandemic. And we've got to consider that aspect as well when we're thinking in terms of easing restrictions, locking down, all of that kind of stuff. Well, of course. I mean, I'm, I know people who have contacted me um, on the show, but also on social media, uh, who have had to get a new job. You know, they might have done something else other than what they're doing now, maybe a taxi driver. They're now driving uh, a van for Amazon or driving deliveries for Sainsbury's, that kind of thing. You know, there's an awful lot of people who are not unemployed, but who have had to find another job, which might not be particularly well paid and might be much less well paid than the one they had. Well, that is another thing that would be kind of masking some of the figures yeah. that we've got. Well, in uh, I, I've, I've got friends of mine who've been working in kind of in the aviation industry. Yeah, no jobs there, been made redundant, and they're kind of doing some kind of part-time work just to kind of keep the family ticking over, yeah. etc. So, right. so we've got all that economic fallout, and and sometimes it's easy to say, yes, we're going to lock down, we're going to have another four or five weeks in terms of all of this, but. We do know that these kind of measures are having a big impact on the mental health and society. And there's not just that, there's all the other aspects now of the kind of the health service where people are not getting kind of the care that they need for other certain things. And we know mm. people are dying from home more than average for the time of year. Maybe they're too scared to go to hospital and seek some medical advice. So, so I think in terms of the, the targets going forward, I think having an ambition of say zero COVID mm. where there's no COVID in society, I don't think that's going to be achievable. What we've got to go back to is what we had last, say, spring, is if we got the vaccine rolled out, we've got the cases coming down. So the people who would be most vulnerable, who would end up in hospital, those will start coming down with the vaccine. You then start looking in terms of, well, yeah, if, if younger people are going to catch the virus before we get the kind of the vaccine, out, they're less likely to fall ill, less likely to die, etc., and you've got to get that balance then. You can't look for perhaps a zero COVID approach. You've got to get a balance where you've got to get society going again mm. so that we can move forward and, and, you know, and have a good 2021. Well, this is it. I mean, you're supposed to be involved in risk analysis when you're a statistician and also when you're in government, um, which I don't appear to be doing any, any, any of. We never really hear anything about that kind of statistic in terms of, you know, what's the likelihood of something happening. All we ever hear about is a sort of worst case scenario. Uh, what if we don't do this, then ter something terrible will happen? Because I was going to ask you, I mean, you're former head of health analysis at the ONS, the Office of National Statistics. Did you ever collate figures on people's health in general, as opposed to just their health through the COVID pandemic? You know, like, for example, their mental health, their uh, their physical health. You know, how do we know, for example, what damage is being done to people who aren't able to go to work, who aren't able to send their kids to school, all that kind of thing? Yeah, so there's lots of information published kind of around that. And we know that the kind of the referral for mental health services have been going up through the pandemic. One of the, the kind of the tragic uh, statistics that takes a bit more time to kind of come through is those who kind of end up sadly um, taking their own lives, etc. Now, we will get a better picture of that next year because there's a bit of a delay in terms of there's a coroner's inquest, etc. So, you know, I, I would probably just say to your listeners as well, if anybody's struggling kind of with their mental health, there's lots of people out there you can talk to in lots of charities as well and and you know seek help if you are kind of feeling vulnerable with regards to all of that but, well but there are i mean there's always people to talk to but if there's nothing for you to do i mean even people that i know who are relatively sort of robust mentally 
are at the end of their tether at this point. They're kind of going, this is just nothing to do. You see people after the weekend, you go, what did you do? And you go, nothing. There's nothing to do. No, it's true, Mike. And, you know, I, I have discussions with my friends and you say, oh, what did he do on the weekend? And yet it's nothing. I just right. stayed in the house. And right. That's why we need these roadmaps to offer some hope, because if we're going to have, if we've got 12 million people vaccinated, all the kind of the top vulnerable groups that have been vaccinated there, you'd think that we'd have some sort of roadmap to say by date X, we're going to be in this position mm. by date Y. I think what the government's probably worried about in that is that they've done that in the past and they've kind of been caught with their trousers down, I suppose, because they've made promises which they're about to roll back on. But if the vaccine is the hope that we've been kind of waiting for all of this time with over 12 million people with a vaccine, you'd expect the spring as well, Mike. We know that kind of viruses tend to diminish a bit in kind of the springtime mm. as you go towards summer. There should be a plan, I think, now that the, the governments in both all four countries should be able to tell us what's going to happen next. Well, you would think so. Um, the problem is, of course, that um, uh, it is a movable feast, isn't it? Uh, and there is sometimes things that can come into the mix which you weren't expecting, like the variant that came in on December the 18th. I think people get that now. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean you can't have a plan which then might have to be altered. I mean, it's like they're talking about having to possibly slightly alter the vaccine to take care of itself against the new variant. You know, you can tweak things, you know, but to have nothing, to have no plan, which you cannot tweak, is really not the way forward, is it? No, I, I, you know, I think we do need this kind of plan in terms of where we're going to go as we go forward. You've got, for example, you know, businesses need to plan as well. Yeah. Uh, people want to think about holidays. We don't know if we're going to be able to go abroad, obviously, if Europe are a bit behind on their vaccines and how that's going to affect things. And on the vaccine, Mike, you know, the, the, the COVID vaccine going forward is probably going to end up exactly like the flu vaccine. You're going to get to need to have an annual shot. They're yeah. going to need to notify you because you get different variants of the flu as well as you get different variants of COVID. So we're always going to be chasing those new variants across the world, etc. But they're not going anywhere. I think we've got to learn to kind of live with COVID yeah. with that yeah. risk-based analysis in terms of, right, what do we need to do to kind of reduce the risk to society, not just from a COVID perspective, but all other aspects of society with regards to, say, mental health, jobs, economy. We know that when people lose jobs, that has a devastating effect on their mental health and, and the kind of the of family outcomes absolutely and looking going back to your map that you spoke about first uh, thing when we were speaking earlier about the sort of the one from january which is more pink uh, than it is yellow and the one now which is more yellow even at that the pink is still uh, just 10 to 20 percent of people testing positive who have had a covid test so i mean even when it was bad it was 10 to 20 percent now with the yellow and green it's five to ten percent and sometimes less than five percent of people testing positive so i mean that is a massively big um sort of indicator it seems to me of still small numbers of people getting infected and of those people getting infected an even smaller number end up going to hospital and i know that like i say because we saw over thirty thousand deaths in january it's a big number uh, it's a big problem i'm not diminishing it but you know it's still a relatively small number compared to the numbers of people in this country yeah, well, it's, it's, it's good news. The cases are coming down, Mike. And remember, there's that time lag that when you get kind of cases coming, going up or coming down, there's a bit of a time lag before you see the effect on hospitals. We saw a massive rise in admissions in London, for example, just before Christmas and, and afterwards. But as fast as they've gone up, they've actually come down just as fast as well. And they're coming down across all parts of the country. So with fewer people in the hospital uh, and then fewer people obviously will end up dying with regards to all of that. Those are kind of the metrics with the vaccine as well, 
hopefully stopping new people going in, even if they catch it. Mm. Those are the metrics that offer those kind of hopes. And, and in the next few weeks, I would expect cases to continue to fall. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the schools, Mike. We know that for many months they said schools, there was no evidence of transmission. And they kept saying that children should be kept in school. It's better for them in the long run. They've which, been which closed. Which is true. Yeah, they, they've been closed. And, and if they do starting a phase return when we get schools back, we might start seeing cases go back up if they start transmitting the virus and then taking it home. But you'd hope at that point, Mike, that the vaccine means that you might see the situation as we go forward that cases go up, but no fewer, no more people go in the hospital yes. because people will catch it. They won't be seriously ill, but we've got to live with it. And then the, you know, the impact on the NHS isn't there. That's what we would be hoping is going to be happening as we go forward, I think. Well, I think that's the point, isn't it? Because the, the vaccine isn't likely to make it any easier for us to move about uh, and to get back to more normal activities. Then what's the point of it? You know what I mean? If we're not using that as a means of improving our lot, then it's not a very good incentive to get it, is it? Well, exactly. No, Mike. And, and the vaccine doesn't stop you catching COVID. What it will do is it just means that if you kind of get infected with the virus, the, the vaccines in you and it will be able to kind of trigger off an immune response to try and attack that, which is why it doesn't stop people kind of getting seriously ill and then having a sad death at the end of it. So so we're going to have cases of COVID throughout the rest of the year. We're going to have cases of COVID, you know, for the rest of our lives because COVID is here to stay. And we, and we know that. But it comes back to that risk based thing. Now, if we've got this vaccine rolled out, we've got to get kind of the economy going at some point as well, because the, we need to offer that hope of all those businesses kind of uh, across the country who just sadly haven't got any hope. They've got friends who run pubs. They want to know what's happening there. You know, they've been kind of waiting for money to come in as well. Some of the self-employed are still struggling to get money coming in as well. So, so I think going back to risk, we've got to look at that, balance the thing up. And it shouldn't just be all about how many infections there is. You also need to look at the economic impact as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Jamie, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics. Mike in Oxford says this on the text. You can send your text in as well to 87222. Uh, Mike, just catching up on the COVID numbers, still basically about 20,000 more deaths than two bad seasonal flu seasons, but spread over 12 months, not two, December, January and February. I truly believe lockdowns just delay the virus and don't reduce hospitalisation and death. This lockdown numbers got increasingly worse the longer it went on until of course maths kicked in where you have people who've had the virus been vaccinated have immunity etc therefore less people left to become ill i don't think we've reached those particular numbers yet but certainly the peak as we are now told was january the 12th uh, it's been rolling downwards since then uh, the graph has been pointing in the right direction since then which is a great thing uh, and obviously we are hopefully on the way out of it but if the government is not going to allow the rest of the economy to be freed up the rest of the schools to go back because of the fact that the vaccine is out there and is being utilised by many, many more people. 12.5 million people have had it now, for heaven's sake. You know, let's get it on. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, we're going to go north of the border. Stuart Weir, journalist based up there uh, in Scotland, because it's a huge week for the Scottish National Party, or the Scottish Nationalist Party, as Boris Johnson likes to call them, uh, because there's a, a committee hearing going on uh, into an inquiry into uh, Nicola Sturgeon, into what she knew, into when she knew it. Her husband, Peter Murrell, uh, is appearing before it today. Alex Salmon, the former First Minister, is meant to appear before it tomorrow. There's some doubt as to whether he might or might not turn up because they've already ruled that he can't uh, introduce certain pieces of evidence. It's all a bit complicated. We'll see if Stuart can untangle it all for us. Stuart, very good morning to you. The answer to that is no. <laughs> but good, mo 
<laughs> Good morning, anyway. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, for those of us who had st- stacked up on the uh, the supply of popcorn to watch uh, this uh, committee uh, gathering, uh, I think we're going to be disappointed this week if Alex Hammond doesn't appear. It's been entertaining this morning, mm. you would have to say, with Peter Murrell giving his evidence uh, to such an extent um, where he's maybe, he, he maybe uh, sort of wavered slightly from what he said previously, uh, that um, uh, the MSP Murdo Fraser challenged him and asked what he said under oath. Did he still stick by that? Yeah. And we now have uh, a number of the, uh, the the committee members and MSPs who are frustrated at uh, Mr. Murrell's uh, answering of some of the questions, saying he's giving false information, and basically accusing him of giving false inter- information under oath. And of course, whereas normally that would impact on the individual, it impacts greatly, of course, in the uh, the Murrell household, as Peter Murrell is, of course, married yes. to Nicola Sturgeon. Well, wasn't he supposedly up before this committee last week, and then he just told them yeah. he wasn't going to bother? Thanks very much indeed, presumably under advisement from... Uh, from the missus. But I mean, the point about him and what he said in the past is that he seems to have a rather woolly uh, memory, doesn't he? As does yeah. she, because she says that she might have been in a meeting, but she can't remember what was said. And then actually she forgot she was in the meeting altogether. I think I think if you happen to stumble home one evening and walk into your, your, your house and there was your wife, the current Scottish First Minister, talking to the previous Scottish <laughs> First Minister who had almost taken Scotland to independence in 2014, there might be some sort of clarity in when this took place and what was being said. Mm. But Mr Murrell can't really decide on whether it was government business or SNP business or whether his wife just had someone round for tea and buns. Yeah, just to chat about the Calcutta Cup or something, which she was very happy <laughs> about, of course, as I'm sure you were, as I was actually at the weekend. But this is the thing, right? Um the, the the argument seems to be about, and this is where people start to sort of lose interest when you start to try and ex- explain precisely what the argument is about. The argument is about her contending that she found about found out about something later than she actually did, and if that's true, then it means that she's misled Parliament. Yeah, absolutely, and people are now picking up on that. There is a we are not talking here, Mike, about a matter of hours or days. We are talking about a sizable chunk of the calendar between when she said she first found out and also how she testified and, and other evidence that came out as to when she actually did know. Mm. And, and and that void has to be filled by something. And a lot of people are now saying, you know, that she has been at best economical with the truth. And it would be it's difficult to tie her down. I noticed in your, your social media, on your tweet, you were talking about the net titans on Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah. I think we're getting to the stage where we're probably going to arm ourselves with a harpoon gun if we are are, are really going to tie her down right. to to remembering these kind of things. Mm. She can't, you know what she what she might have said, who she said it to. It's all becoming very convoluted and very confused. Mm. But a lot, an awful lot of um, observers in Scotland and columnists have already said that this particular inquiry is not really worth the paper it's written on uh, because it's not particularly independent and it certainly isn't about to hear uh, the evidence that Alex Salmond wants it to hear, which is why he may not show up tomorrow. Um, And many are calling for a completely independent inquiry, which would actually get to the bottom of this. Yeah, but then again, I think if you ask for a completely independent inquiry, 
you would then have people picking and choosing who who would look at, into these matters. Uh, I think it's very difficult in Scotland just now to get anything that's independent. Some would say even a country that's independent. Yeah. But I think just now, uh, if you looked at yesterday's newspaper, the front page of... I think the Sunday Post it was who pictured all of the committee members and basically put the headline in the strap line, misled, obstructed, divided and racing the clock, salmon inquiry, MSPs reveal an investigation in crisis. And the fact that they're at this stage means the whole thing could collapse. Mm. And if it does collapse, people won't say there is something to hide. People will say it wasn't worth doing it in the first place, so therefore continue as normal. Yes, I suppose that might be what they're doing. But when you look at Murdo Fraser, you mentioned him earlier, who was questioning Peter Murrell. Uh, he's he's tweeted this, right? Giving a false statement under oath is a criminal offence under Section 44.1 of the Criminal Law Consolidation Scotland Act 1995. It is clear from his evidence today that Peter Murrell is guilty of this offence. So what that effectively is like saying, uh, it's, it's a bit like saying um, that basically um, Boris Johnson's wife, uh, if he had one, or his partner... Um, is guilty of lying to the parliamentary committee, right? I mean, it seems extraordinary, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, I, I mean, I keep picturing... Remember the sketches that Morecambe and Wise used to have when uh, the two of them are sitting in bed right. in their striped pyjamas, basically saying, and what are you doing tomorrow, dear? Yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to be learning this this text or this script so that I don't drop you in it from a great yeah, height. Right. And that is entirely what it looks like. It really does. So, I mean, as far as the, the stuff that, that, that is not being allowed to be discussed tomorrow, which is why Alex Summons says he may not show up, what is that exactly? Uh, well, Alex Salmond, um he obviously has evidence that he wanted to uh, ex- expose. Um, it's been in the hands of you know various solicitors and, of course, with the the the, the committee. Um, he has recently, in fact, within about the last half hour, his lawyers have released another statement saying, asking a witness to accept the constraints of speaking only to evidence selected by you on the undisclosed advice and direction of unidentified others is not acceptable in any forum and is, in our client's view, particularly offensive when the remit he seeks to address has been set by out by Parliament and addressed the unlawful actions of an elected government. I mean, that is as much as you can lay the boot into somebody on a Monday morning uh, and, and still get away with it. I, I think I think what he's going to do is come out, if he had the opportunity, and, and basically open up his diary as to what was said and who said it. Mm. And if he does that, then I think all the spotlight certainly focuses in on Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah, it's certainly something she could do without, you know. Um, it's very ah. clear that down here now in London, there's a much bigger and sharper focus on whether Nicola Sturgeon is actually doing the job that she convinces everybody that she seems to be doing. Um, and there's a lot more doubt now being cast on her future uh, and her longevity even as as the head of the, of the SNP, because whichever way this goes, um, this is not a good situation for her. Yeah, any strategist would tell you, a military strategist would tell you, you should only fight on one front at a time. 
most people, most politicians in 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 the, the UK are fighting COVID just now mm. and looking for you know the the to cure uh, COVID and stave off the threat of the pandemic. However, she's managed to open up several fronts. You have the the salmon inquiry. You have our own domestic inquiry that's probably taking place as well. You have the shambles of the vaccinations in Scotland, where we were promised uh, a million people would be vaccinated by the 1st of February, and we fell 400,000 short on that. Mm. You know, there are so many other issues in so many other areas and above all she's also fighting probably her own membership within the SNP having said yeah we will have another independence referendum in 2021 yeah Personally, I don't think a great many people have a stomach for that, and a great many people will be casting doubt on that as well, and the validity of that, given the fact that she can't do her day job. Well, that's the thing. And also, on top of the Joanna Cherry story from last week, where she got yeah. fired from the front bench because of her uh, disagreements with uh, with the leadership and her friendship with Alex Salmon, uh, there's another MP, uh, SNP MP, I believe, uh, who's added uh, some money to a crowdfunding page for somebody else who's suing a different SNP MP. Yes. I mean, I mean, talk about, you know, trouble at mill. It really is uh, like a, a sort of party eating itself. To, to, to use the military analogy again, I think that would qualify as blue on blue, or yes. in the case of the SNP, yellow on yellow. Right. And I, I mean, there is, a, there is a real chasm growing within the SNP, so much so that one or two um, experts are predicting that it could be the breakup of the SNP as we know it, which would see... Two independence parties. Now, whether that would dilute the the membership and dilute the the, the strength of the the vote for independence, I'm not quite sure. Given the the way that uh, Holyrood is elected and you you have multiple votes, it might actually strengthen their hand. And you know, being the sceptic I am um, on a number of things, I would say that there might be there might be some. Uh, Machiavellian plotting going on in the background that that's the, exactly what one or two are actually looking for. Absolutely right. And obviously uh, they're going ahead with the elections despite the fact that in Scotland I think at the moment you're not actually allowed to go outside your front garden, are you? No, no, you, you're not. In fact, you're not allowed to stay in the same house as the people that you stay in the house with. <laughs> <laughs> How are they going to run it's, an election then? It's ter- it's terribly contrived. I mean, I, I I heard someone saying, and you'll have to take your own pencil. Getting out the front door in Scotland's a bigger challenge. So, I, you know, I, I think on one hand we're being told this lockdown isn't for easing, and on the other hand. We might be, it might be a bit like Christmas Day. Mm. You might be allowed out just to vote, but make sure you put your tick in the right box. <laughs> as long as you vote for the SNP, we'll let you yeah. out of your house. I mean, it's not funny, but I mean, it's almost that. <laughs> it's almost that bad, isn't it? Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm. I'm now wondering what Romania was like in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what is it actually uh, like there? Because I mean, down here, people are getting pretty fed up. Even though uh, you know, London is reasonably busy. Most parts of the country are not, um, and a lot, an awful lot of bits of London are not particularly. But I mean, you, you guys have been in a much stricter lockdown for yeah. longer, haven't you? Yeah, we have. I mean, just before Christmas, I had to. I, I physically had to go to the bank. And um, uh, walking through uh, city centre in Glasgow, through George Square, yeah. from from the old where the old uh, Evening Times offices used to be, you'd be familiar with that. Yeah. Uh, to Gordon Street, which is right next to Central Station, and I walked there and back at around three o'clock on a Monday afternoon, and I passed seventeen people. Wow, that's I mean, honestly, extraordinary, it, isn't it? 
if there was any Hollywood studios out there wanting to come back to Glasgow and do some shooting, now is the time to do it because there's absolutely nobody around. It is so quiet. And the other thing is, Mike, it's not as if the buildings are, are just sitting there waiting for people you know, to open the doors. So many of the, the, the pubs and restaurants are actually boarded up. Mm. Okay, that's to protect what's inside, but it, it gives a really spooky and a really eerie feeling to the centre of Glasgow when you know what a vibrant hub that is, mm. given the fact you've got two major train stations almost side by side, given the fact you've got some fantastic shopping areas within Glasgow. Glasgow ain't what it used to be. No. Well, nowhere is at the moment. That's the trouble. Stuart, good yeah. to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. We'll keep an eye uh, on developments throughout this week, I'm sure. Uh, Peter Murrell, giving evidence today, uh, has been accused of basically making a false statement uh, by a Tory MSP. Uh, that's the husband of the First Minister of Scotland who has now been accused of making a false statement under oath, a criminal offence. That's where this is going, ladies and gentlemen. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's a very cold Monday morning. Time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Well, OK, my brakes froze on my bicycle this morning. but oh, I God. Frozen, so here I am. What happens when that, when, when that happens? I didn't see many you cyclists become, out this morning. You become totally immobile. That's what happens. And then you turn the bicycle upside down and fiddle with it. And, it, uh, and then you release it. But it's quite <laughs> alarming. Well, I must admit, I'd, I would be, I'd be a bit, a bit wary of black ice and that kind of thing, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, you can only, you can't use cycle paths and things like that. You have to stick to the main roads because they've been gritted. Oh, of course. Yeah, I never, I did wonder about that actually because the one cyclist I did see on the way in was on the road, and I was about to suggest to him that he moved to the cycleway, uh, but maybe that was the reason. Well, that is the reason, and a lot of cyclists are either not going out, or if they are out, then they have to use the main roads because. Very few authorities actually bother to grit or clear cycle tracks. Uh, they just don't seem to think it matters. Although they all pose as being cycle friendly, they aren't really. Right, yeah. Well, I seem to remember as well, they built one of the cycle superhighways, as they call it, rather laughably in London. And it was made with such a slippery material that they had to rip it all up again because cyclists were coming around, I think it was Vauxhall Bridge or somewhere, uh, and just sliding off the uh, the cycle path because it was so slippery. That's completely credible. I, what... What local authorities do tend to do is they they, they, they design these cycle paths which are visible from the moon, uh, but which suddenly stop uh, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere or t- turn into car parks. Yeah, uh, they're doing it to fulfil quotas rather than because they really either understand the problem or believe what they're saying. It's a pity because if more people did it, we'd have a much healthier population and a much happier one. But alas, the Everything is designed around the car still, so quite un, quite reasonably, car drivers get annoyed about having to make way for cyclists and stuff like yes. that. And I blame them uh, because the thing is never really very intelligently done. Well, that's the trouble, and I mean my uh, my argument with those who do these things uh, is as well that what they what they're actually doing is creating more congestion, not less, uh, by all of the measures that they put into place, and they don't give any incentive really uh, to anybody to not drive. Uh, quite frankly, no, completely not. I mean, it's, it's very hard the way the, the way the world is arranged at the moment, uh, particularly uh, for those people who have to take children to nurseries, uh, go on to a place of work, uh, to travel by any other means than the car. A whole uh, the whole way of life is designed around the car. 
A lot of people drive cars not because they want to or they like it, but because they have to. Mm. And there's absolutely no point making life more difficult for them. It's not going to stop them driving cars. It's just going to make them annoyed. Yes. Uh, I just think we should redesign our, our cities and indeed our countryside around a different, a different form of transport. But ever since the, the Beeching report of the 1960s, it's, it's been car, car, car. We, mm. The Ministry for Transport is the Ministry for Cars. Yes, well, quite. Well, that's um, another a story for another day, I it suppose, is because uh, once again, you may well be accused again of talking common sense uh, and or demanding evidence, which, of course, uh, you were accused <laughs> of at the weekend. You mustn't do that. No, it's uh, you're treated with immense suspicion, hostility. There's some some academic posted things saying, "Well, the reason why flu has disappeared is that the flu is is, is so much infections of flu are so, are so much less virulent than those of a virus." Because I was asking her exactly why it was that the flu had virtually disappeared. COVID hasn't. The standard up response to this is that everybody's been following the the social distancing and yes. hygiene measures. Well, if it, if it works against flu, why doesn't it work in exactly the same way against well, COVID? Well, exactly right. And this well, is the... they, well, they have different infection rates. So I said, okay, well, thanks very much. But uh, but can you point me to where this is explained? Hmm. And that was the point at which I, I began to be tr- treated as if I was some kind of uh, vandal who put a brick through a window. <laughs> Very, uh, and I was told I should have Googled it. I said, "Well, you said it." Right. The other one, so I, I'm constantly accused of claiming to have, of, of having theories about the uh, about the the outbreak. I don't have any theories about it. I'm just uh, because I'm not equipped to do so. I'm just skeptical about a lot of the things which authority and the majority of the media say. Uh, and, and think they should be tested. Yeah. And this increasingly it gets me. I, again, I was uh, the the noted author of of anti God children's books. Philip Pullman uh, was having a go at me at the weekend. I saw sort that. Of, yeah. Uh, insinuating uh, that I had said things which had led to the uh, to, uh, to to doctors being insulted. I've never said anything which would suggest that no. doctors. Then why would I? No, but this is a new this is a new tactic, Peter, that they've brought in. It's just a smear, Uh, and I, I, Sir Philip himself, people should look this up. has an It has an interesting record on Twitter, uh, which doesn't really put in a very good very good position for berating me. But I, I mean, it is over and over again this suggestion that things that I've said or done have led to to bad behaviour by people which I've not encouraged or deaths Mm. in which I've had no part, and it's. I, I accept that the, the 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 other side have a, a have a good intentions and a, a reasonable point of view, and I start from the position. Okay, then if let's discuss this rationally, mm. and this this to begin with, this was met by either blank hostility or silence. Now it's being met with a, a much more worrying thing, which is an attempt to, to shut me and others up by mm. guilt by association smears and it's it's serious if you have a society without opposition then you get the iraq war and you get uh, thalidomide being given to, to pregnant women and you get all kinds of mistakes being made because opposition is vital to the proper consideration of, mm. of policy decisions and a fascinating thing which uh, jonathan sumption lord sumption uh, wrote in the mail on sunday uh, yesterday uh, which is well worth examining which is he pointed out that there was actually Quite serious contingency planning for a major, uh, major pandemic of a uh, of a respiratory disease. Uh, plans existed, and they they had didn't remotely resemble what we did, uh, but they were just chucked aside. 
in a moment uh, in that extraordinary week of panic in late March. Mm. But they, we did have a plan, and it, it, it was a, a, based on decades of experience, the sort of thing which civil servants are expert in drawing up. But it was just chucked away. And uh, we, we decided to copy China instead. And this, this is the most extraordinary revelation. Now, people should realize that there always has been an alternative approach, which is perfectly serious, perfectly humane, just as concerned about saving life as the, the closure of our society, and that it existed and was discarded. Yes, I think that, uh, he, that he also suggests that, uh, that the government was spooked by what they saw going on in Italy, not least by uh, uh, the sort of the, and we've talked about this before, you and I, the sort of the numbers of lorries yeah. turning up, the the, 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 the the video pictures of inside hospitals where there were bodies just literally piled up everywhere. And I think that really, really spooked them because it did look an awful situation. But we've never had that situation and we never did have it. Um, and it wasn't because we locked it yeah. down. It was just because it just didn't happen. No, it's, it's also the, the regrettable truth that a lot of things go on in, in our society which don't tend to get filmed most of the time, mm. uh, which, if they were filmed, would make people very distressed. And I, I think that it, it, it's essential to realise that a lot of the difference lies in the, in the coverage and the, uh, and the intensity of, of, of interest in it, which makes it seem, uh, I, I won't say worse than it is, but it certainly makes it seem very worrying. And people are afraid of disease and death yeah. with perfectly good reason. And if, it, they, if they're given a constant diet of disease and death on their television screens and in their newspapers, then they will become worried. It will yeah. change their behavior and their way of thinking. I, I, I just think that people should be a bit, bit more cautious about the, the way in which these things are done and also a bit more cautious in the way in which they, they respond to media coverage. That's asking more, though, I have yes. to say. The power of seeing a chaotic hospital uh, with people running and shouting and people dying and yeah. or a huge coffin-filled morgue on the screen. The power of that on the mind is vast. Yes. Well, it's similar to something that happens uh, every time there's an air crash. It doesn't happen so much anymore because there aren't so many air crashes. But I always remember when I was in newspapers, and you still are, obviously, Peter, whenever there was an air crash, um, you would suddenly have a flurry of reports of near misses. Um, and suddenly yeah. that would make it into the papers for about a week. And everyone would say, yeah, but this happens every day. There's a near miss practically every day. It only really gets reported in the wake of an air crash. Indeed, I, and, and, and it's also the case with, with train crashes, yeah. which are terrible things. Large numbers of people die at once, but in fact, the railways remain extraordinarily safe. Mm. Uh, but the thing is that train crashes, when they happen, the, the numbers of, of dead are, uh, are large. The, the aerial pictures of the concertina train are, are, are dramatic and frightening. Uh, but in fact, the, if we covered road crashes in the same way, it would rapidly become clear that roads are far more dangerous mm. than trains. But in fact, the coverage continues to suggest that trains are terribly, terribly dangerous and train crashes happen a lot, uh, which is it, it's just the way in which the media operates means that these misleading, uh, misleading estimates of the importance of events, the context of them are actually far too common. It's, yes. a, it's a major fault. Yes, of, it, it is. Trade, but, the, but I'll tell you what I try harder to correct. Yeah, what I find slightly more disturbing is what you mentioned there about Philip Pullman and others who have now started to use as a tactic this kind of blame game where they say that what you say is dangerous and it has this terrible effect. I mean, here's a guy, I know you don't want to say it, but I will say it, uh, who I pointed out, I think, on your Twitter feed, uh, once called for the lynching of the Prime Minister. You know, so his idea of, uh, of you somehow inciting other people is, is rather ironic for a start. I, I but, should say, he, he, says, he says that's not what he was doing. But he did take the tweet down. So, yes. I, I mean, I, oddly enough, I mean, I think 
he's he's more silly than anything else. Yes, I, I don't. I, I've criticised his books, and I think he he, he doesn't really like that very much. <laughs> well, I mean, he's, he's also but he's also written about <laughs> yeah. he's also written about what a terrible country Britain is, which is a country which has made him rather wealthy, uh, not least by uh, providing him with large funds of money for the BBC. Well, indeed, but I, let's not let's not enter into the strange world. of... <laughs> no, no, let's not. Well, but Sir Philip Pullman, as I think we should we should stress his his his, his title. Yes, indeed, because I've had the same. Um, funnily enough, because I do occasionally get into rows with cyclists on uh, on Twitter, and they accuse me of creating an atmosphere where cyclists can be harmed by motorists because I'm anti-cyclist, which I'm not. But I I, I just I ask for cyclists to behave uh, as they would if they were driving a car and try to ad- adhere to the rules as best they can and not go through red lights. I would say there is, I mean, this is not you, but I would say there is exaggerated hostility on the part of some motorists towards cyclists. And if ever you get into any sort of altercation, invariably someone will say to you, but you don't pay road tax. Uh, to which I respond, well, actually, I, I pay an enormous amount of tax mm. towards the road because I pay a lot of income tax. And there is no such thing as road tax as it happens. Uh, but that idea has been spread, that mm. cyclists can free ride on expensive roads made for them. Uh, on the other hand, I would completely side with those people who say an awful lot of cyclists just break the rules all the time. Uh, and, and, but but it, is, it does make, uh, some of these things do do make for hostility. I'm not saying anybody's been killed as a result of it, but I think you can create unnecessary hostility if you, but I would, I would challenge anybody uh, to, to to say that uh, that anything that I said has ever encouraged anybody to be rude to a mm. hard working doctor uh, in the middle of a, 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 no. of a rat break of disease because I just it, it, it wouldn't even ever occur to me what would be the point. No, of course I was speaking to a statistician this morning, Jamie Jenkins, who used to be at the ONS, and I said to him, you know, it's not as though any of us don't believe this to be a serious uh, pandemic or a serious disease or a serious virus. It's not that. It's just that we want accountability and honesty from the politicians. And whenever I now hear this 100,000 figure dead being trotted out, it's as if nobody now questions it. Nobody says, as I said to him this morning, is it not possible that some of those people who have had a COVID positive test in the last 28 days before they died, is it not possible that they did not die uh, of COVID? And it is, and he, con- he, he, he conceded that it was possible. And so the 100,000, you know, so I'd much rather have a, a proper figure of what these, the so-called excess deaths are. And that would be more honest, I think. Well, completely. And the, the, the 100,000 figure is interesting. But again, I can't say because I, I have no means of knowing. I can't say the figure is, is inaccurate or misleading. I, I can say, however, that the way in which the figures are, are gathered and recorded um, makes it perfectly possible uh, that, it, that, the, the, that there is an overestimate here. And, and I say again and again that right back in April, Dr. Jenny Harris, one of the deputy chief medical officers, made this very point at a government press conference. Dying with and dying of are not the same thing. Mm. And, it, it, and this, I have to say, we've seen much less of Dr. Harris uh, than of the other deputy chief medical officer or the other medical officers uh, since she said that. But that probably that's completely <laughs> coincidental. <laughs> well, it may well be. But it is interesting, isn't it, that we're getting a message now that's coming quite loud and clear through certain avenues, shall we say, of the press, uh, that Boris Johnson wants to lift the lockdown more. Uh, however, he's being sort of stymied from doing so by the science and by the scientists, uh, almost as if well, he's being held hostage. The scientists have one responsibility, uh, and it is, it, it, which is to, it, it is to constantly stress the dangers which can be avoided by taking certain precautions. They have no wider responsibilities at all. They don't have to worry 
about whether the actions which they propose or defend have have collateral effects on cancer treatment, uh, heart disease, or or anything else. Or that they don't have to worry about the fact they're never, never even asked to consider uh, the effects of these 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 things upon the old uh, living on their own, upon divided families, and the other demoralizing things, which I I believe are actually making quite a lot of people. They don't have to, and, and they're not. They're not elected. Uh, they don't have to go before the public. They have one responsibility. Because the other thing is, if they get it wrong, uh, and if they if they offer advice which then leads, uh, which when taken then leads to bad things, uh, then they face blame for it. And one of the problems about making restrictions, and, and this is this is my, my my great metaphor. This is not even really a metaphor. Is Margaret Thatcher's gates in Downing Street? And there they are. Mm. They were put up because of some alleged threat that Hezbollah was going to come driving up Downing Street with a, with a lorry load of explosives about 20 years ago. Uh, and, and they will never, ever move mm. because no one will ever, no expert, no security chief will ever say these gates should go. Because if in the any time period from six months to 60 years afterwards, Hezbollah eventually do turn up uh, with a lorry load of explosives, uh, then that person will be blamed for having taken the gates away. And that's yeah. the problem with restrictions. Once you put them in place, no one will take yeah. responsibility for removing them. That requires political courage. And also, there's no question, I don't think, that some of these people who work in public health, and I use that almost as though uh, it's the same as the distinction between with COVID and of COVID, because working in public health doesn't necessarily make you an expert in health. You don't have to be one. You can be a behavioural scientist. You can be somebody uh, who's written a couple of you know interesting dissertations about people uh, and how they relate to illness. It doesn't have to be that you're a doctor. And I think these are people who live their lives, or at least maybe they don't live their lives this way, um, but they they make out that we should all live our lives avoiding as much risk as possible. And some people don't want to live like that. Well, they're utopians. They, they have, as a, as a good friend of mine keeps pointing out, they've decided that we should live in a new Jerusalem of total safety. Mm. And it sounds quite attractive. Think, well, no risk. Uh, death pushed to the very margins of society. Disease reduced to the minimum. Well, actually, we've done a heck of a lot to do that in the past 20 or 30 years, which is why so many more people are living so much longer. Mm. Uh, but if you take it beyond a certain point where life has to be so restricted as the price for it, uh, then many people will say, well, actually, do I want to live in this new Jerusalem? Uh, I quite like the old Jerusalem, yeah. thank you very much. Or indeed the old Wolverhampton. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't want to be there, but there's never been a, an election in which somebody has stood and said, look, what we've decided to do and what we, if we're in government, we will do is create a society in which you are so safe uh, that actually you have you can't leave your homes for large periods of the year. You're you, you, you're constantly washing and sanitizing yourself. You can't mix with people. The pubs all have to close. Uh, lots of industries have to close. Foreign travel becomes an impossibly expensive and difficult enterprise. If people were were, were given this option, they might say, well, "Actually, I might prefer a little bit more risk and a bit well, less restriction." But no one's ever offered them this choice. Well, that's the problem. I mean, I lived in New York in the '80s, and it was slightly grubby, quite dangerous thrilling um, and an incredible city. Now it's just another city because Rudolf Giuliani kind of ruined it by making it completely and utterly for a crime free. You got rid of the mafia. You got rid of the insider trading on Wall Street. You got rid of the hot dog sellers. Um, and I, I was in a taxi once and the guy says, why is he getting rid of that? This is New York. It's not Salt Lake City, but it's kind of well, turned into Salt Lake City. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm slightly with, uh, slightly with Giuliani there. I mean, got in the late <laughs> 70s. 
uh, wandered into the wrong part of town uh, after dark. Yeah. And sincerely wish that I hadn't. I'm, yeah. I'm quite in favor of, uh, of, of making New York a bit more crime free. I mean, it wasn't always um, a, 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 a dump of, of crime. I think that in the era before really the, the late 60s and 70s, it was quite a well policed city and it suddenly went down this spiral. So I'm not entirely sure I'd go with you there, Mike. I, I think there are some risks I'm quite keen on. On, on no, I, no, I, I know what you mean, but I just, but I I just find it. I find it's like Disney. I mean, you used to go to 42nd Street, Times Square, which was an absolute kind of ghastly, debauched place full of crackheads, hookers, yes, porn theatres, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and now it's like Disneyland, and somehow it doesn't work for me. No. No, well, I can see that. But I think other people would say, well, maybe there's a price to be paid for having an orderly city where people are safe from being mugged and, and, and burgled and where, and where drug abuse is discouraged and things like that. So I, I, I wouldn't... I, there is obviously a, a point, and we, you and I disagree about it, uh, that ex- exactly where the intervention of the, of, of the law and the state should begin. But I think that this the level of restriction under which we currently live and may, it seems to me, live for some time to come, is goes a lot further uh, than a police crackdown on porn and drugs and muggers. Mm. It's it, this is a, this is the the restriction of the law abiding uh, and the uh, and the narrowing of life to such an extent that we we may be safe, uh, but safe to do what? Yeah. Uh, we're alive but not living. Yes, I think that's very true. Peter, we're out of time, sadly, but we will be reconvening on Wednesday uh, with you and Dan Hodges, head-to-head, I think we're going to call it. Uh, hopefully that will go uh, well, and uh, we'll be recording that uh, for a publication uh, and broadcast a little bit later on uh, this week. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday, columnist. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let us say a very good afternoon uh, to Hugh Pennington, Professor uh, of Bacteriology at Aberdeen University. Hugh, a very good afternoon to you. Hi there. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Why suddenly do you think there is this kind of, um, well, I don't know, hesitance, I suppose, would be the best way to describe it. Um, after uh, uh, writing the Daily Telegraph, Nadim Zahawi uh, says the vaccines being used in Britain work terribly well against the COVID-19 variants currently dominant in the UK. But he's had to say that because it's been suggested that it doesn't. Well, uh, a small study in South Africa, about 2,000 people, has um, basically shown that what the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't do is protect them mm. against uh, mild illness, which is really quite different from protecting against, you know, being hospitalised, going into ICU, and actually, not to put too fine a point, it being killed by the, by the virus. Because, you know, the vaccine really uh, works in two ways. One, one is to stop a serious infection, and there's no evidence that it doesn't do that, mm. and all the evidence we have suggests that it will do that reasonably well. Um, but stopping the virus growing in your nose and causing mild symptoms is really quite different, and there's been a quite a lot of um, argument about that, whether any of the vaccines do that, and the evidence for that is not yet uh, at all clear. And maybe they don't do it terribly well, so they don't stop the virus spreading, but they stop when the virus infects somebody, uh, um, the virus getting into you know organs like the lungs and other organs in the body and causing the serious infections, which you know essentially can kill people. 
And all the evidence that we have to date suggests that uh, the vaccines do that. They prevent the severe infection, but they may not be very good at preventing the virus actually growing, you know, basically up in the nose and the back of the throat. So, yes. uh, you know, clearly what we have to wait for is, is much more definitive evidence on that. But my, my expectation is that the vaccines, any of them, all of them, will, uh, will work against... Uh, reducing, if not preventing completely, these very serious infections, but they may not be so good at stopping the virus getting about. Yes, I think one of the problems, um, Professor, that we have at the moment in, in the world is that the media um, is so keen to get a new story every single day about something which is essentially not really changing that much at the moment that they, seem, they sort of give more importance to stories like this than they probably should. I mean, it's on the front page pretty much of, of most newspapers today um, that, that, that we should be keeping faith with this jab. And as you've just rather eloquently explained, uh, it's a very small study uh, in a different country um, which may or may not be correct. That's right. That's right. And, uh, yes, the, the media is very exercised about this. It has been for several weeks now about the variants and the mutants and yeah. sort of Frankenstein not being mentioned by name, but, you know, being lurking there in the back of, of people's minds and all that kind of stuff. Now, entirely to be expected that we get these mutants, because we know that these viruses, we know coronaviruses mutate quite a lot. Mm. Not, maybe not quite as much as flu, but not far off. And we know with flu every year you have to have a different, well, not every year you have to have a different vaccine, but, but every year we look at the viruses that are buzzing about and change the vaccines if we think that they, the vaccines need to be changed. And that's one thing that, for example, the Oxford group says, yes, they, they're on top of this, and if they need to change the vaccine, they can do it quite quickly it's much easier to do the the first part you know the, the actual to actually get the, the vaccine and then tweak it yeah to grow it because you have to make you know quite a lot of it and get it tested and you know the regulators have to be certain that everything is going on and one of the big problems i think has been getting it into little bottles not mm. making it but you know dispensing it as it were you know that's pretty common sense you can work that out but nevertheless nevertheless they're in a position to if there's a need to change the vaccine to make it stronger it can be done really quite quickly um in terms of changing the actual vaccine and it, it will be the same essential vaccine as the one that be, that's been rolled out mm. you know, the, the the basic composition is the same so there won't be need for an endless sort of uh, regulatory kind of approval just sort of waiting months and months and months and months to do that so i'm really quite optimistic that that the vaccine itself as it stands will give protection uh, but if uh, as more mutants appear which is entirely to be expected we don't know what they're going to do some might be even milder you know in terms of what they do to people than the current virus because that's been the examples there are examples of that with other coronaviruses in causing animal disease but never mind one can't bank on that one has to assume one has to assume and be prepared for the virus changing in a way that might make the vaccines uh, significantly less effective and we can cope with that we can cope with that and even the vaccines that have been rolled out even if a new mutant appears that um, you know is really very different the the immunity that the current vaccines have given will will act as a kind of backstop they'll they'll be there and that will be stimulated by any new vaccine as well so the, you know I, i'm really quite optimistic that we're going down the right track 
and that basically there's, no need, there's certainly no need to panic at all, that the vaccines that have been rolled out in the UK are very protective against all the viruses that are buzzing around at the moment. We know that. Um, obviously, one question is how um, well the South African variant will do. Will mm. it compete with the, you know, with the, the, the British variant or not? Uh, because the British variant has got quite common, but that one is... Uh, we're protected by the current vaccines against that one. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic that uh, we, we'll get on top of the virus uh, using the vaccine approach. We'll still have to have the social distancing, I'm afraid, for quite a time to come, because even the vaccine itself, even if it was 100% effective, not everybody's going to take it. And uh, a few people won't make as good an immune response because that's the way vaccines work. Most people make a good immune response, but not everybody, etc., etc. Well, that's so right. Even then, we'll have to have some social distancing going on until we've got the virus levels right down. Right but, down. you know, I was talking to a caller earlier on, um, Eric, I think it was in Shropshire, who was talking about being in the music business and uh, the problems for people who are in the entertainment business in general. Uh, being told by people at Sage, well, of course, you know, Glastonbury's not going to go on uh, for several years. You're not going to be able to have gatherings of mass numbers of people uh, in any way, shape or form, whether it's a theatre, whether it's a sports event, whether it's uh, a concert of some description. And I think there seems to be two schools of thought at the moment, Hugh. There's one from Sage which says, you know, that's what we have to do and we have to keep these people apart. Or there's the other school which says, look, if we are going to have to live with this virus, we're going to need to find a better way uh, of doing it, which doesn't involve bankrupting, you know, millions of people uh, and preventing uh, thousands and thousands of people from working. Well, my own view is that knowing what coronaviruses, other coronaviruses have, have done in the past, and particularly SARS, which we had quite a bit, you know, it was, we had a bad time with it, 2002, but we got rid of the bloody thing. Mm. We got rid of it completely. And I think there's a real prospect, a real prospect. I'm not making any predictions, but there's a real prospect. We it could be a scenario here. It doesn't have to be a prediction. We could get the levels down so low that basically, as long as we have a good contact tracing system where we can jump on in little outbreaks, because, well, maybe they even be, might be quite big, but they'll be very localised and we can control that, I think we can then pretty well go back to normal for everything else. And that there might have to be some travel restrictions on countries that haven't done as well as we have in controlling the virus. I mean, that is basically what happened with smallpox in the olden days. You know, it was still buzzing around in other countries, and we had the occasional outbreak, imported cases, but we managed to cope very well by having, you know, a, a very good system to do that. And I think that my, my own view is, my own view is, that that that's that'll be the situation we're in in the not too distant future with with, with covid mm. and the, the music industry and pubs and you know going to restaurants and uh, you know going to football matches will be back to pretty well where we were before Yes. I mean, what about the situation uh, of the delayed vaccine? Because I see there's a piece today quoting David Nabarro from the World Health Organization. This is another thing that, that there was a sort of a dual uh, and two different opinions about, whether it was better to, to vaccinate more people first uh, with one vaccine than it was to multiply uh, the numbers of vaccines that were given to people in the 12 weeks, which it now is, rather than the three weeks, which originally it was going to be. Uh, the World Health Organization now saying that might be the right thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we basically have to use the vaccines that are available. There's a whole raft of different ones that are available. And that 
basically they all work in pretty well the same way. They all stimulate you know, an immune response against mostly against the spike protein, but some are broader than that. And basically, um, you know, that's the aim of the, the exercise with the vaccines. It doesn't matter which one you've got. If you've got, if you've got immunity against your spike protein, that's going to stop the virus doing much mischief. It might even stop it growing altogether. Mm. And even putting two different vaccines, one first and another one second, might work quite well. And we know that immune system, we know enough about how immune systems work to be really quite optimistic that that will, that will work fine. And basically, as long as we use the vaccines that are being produced in, in the most effective way, and I think the most effective way is what, how the way we're doing it in the UK, where you know, we're getting as many people vaccinated as possible to get the virus sort of numbers of severe cases down as far as possible. That's basically saving lives. And, 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 then, and then we can start worrying a bit later about vaccinating the whole population and, um, because we're not into that phase yet at all, mm. which, which will actually have more of an effect on stopping the virus um, having a, you know, a targets to hit, as it were, because people will be immune and you know, they won't get the virus to the level that they can then spread it on. Even even if the virus does continue for a while, then we clearly we also have to think about other things about controlling outbreaks because this virus specialises in causing outbreaks and we identify those outbreaks, put a sort of ring around them, you know. And, that doesn't take very long actually, and that's how we've worked with other infectious agents and we've worked very successfully with it. And the example I keep on going back to is smallpox, which was very similar in many ways to this virus, although it was easier to diagnose because you've got spots and there wasn't the sort of asymptomatic thing, which is a which is the, the real bugbear with this virus that people can be infected without knowing they're infected, but can be infectious and spread the virus on. That's the bugbear, and that's why we have to have a very good testing system to spot those people and so on. So the more testing we do and the, the more ability we have to control outbreaks, the, the sooner the virus will die out. And that, that is my hope. It's, I'm not making a prediction because, uh, you know... No, that's that. a very dangerous business, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not expecting you to make any predictions. But what I would ask you, uh, Hugh, is in terms of the way that the numbers are, are falling at the moment. Um, we're told that the peak was probably January the twelfth. Um, I'm wondering, in a normal kind of winter time period, what sorts of um, uh, uh, sort of pressures are highest, and when is it? During the first two weeks of January that's usually worst, and does it then improve from from that point on in in terms of NHS? bed occupancy and that kind of thing. Yeah, by analogy with flu, that's what we would expect, that January is the peak of, of the flu season, um, and we don't really know why flu gets calmer in the winter, uh, but we all we know is that it does. And, it, you know, it's to do with the climate and people staying more inside than you know they would do in the summer and all that kind of thing. And we know that January is the peak time for that, and then, it, then, it, and then, the, and then it cools off from the virus point of view, you know, in February and March, uh, uh, you know, we enter a much quieter time. And the expectation is, and this was a prediction that was made, you know, last summer, that, that, that this is what would happen with this virus. And it's what's happening with this virus. Mm. You know, it's got cold in winter, as, as was predicted, for the same sort of reasons, whatever they are, that flu gets, uh, gets busy in, in January. And then, and then as the weather... Although apparently this year it hasn't done. And, and we're, told, we're told that flu hasn't really affected people as much this year. Um, and certainly there haven't been any flu deaths this year. And we're told that that might be because of the COVID um, restrictions. But on the same, by the same token, we're also told um, that COVID is still spreading because people aren't uh, obeying the law. 
Well, yes. Yes, I mean, there are differences there. But, you know, flu is, is a law unto itself. And some years are bad and some years are not bad. And this year is definitely the quietest flu year, I think, on record. And it was six months ago in New Zealand and Chile and Australia as well. So utterly predictable that we would have a very, very quiet, almost zero flu season this, this year because of people wearing masks and, you know, socially distancing and all that, which has a bigger, which obviously has had a bigger effect on flu than it has on COVID, because COVID gets around very, 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 very easily. And obviously, I think at the end of the day, we'll, we'll work out that, yes, it, it gets around a lot easier than flu does. There, there aren't that many asymptomatic infections with flu, for example. And of course, the flu does affect people in a very different way. Like, for example, schools were a very, very big sort of factor in spread of flu, but they're not in, in COVID, you know, although they, they may play a role, it's a much less important role with COVID than it is with flu. So there are quite big sort of epidemiological differences between the, between the viruses, but the seasonal effect has definitely been there, you know, um, and as I said, we don't really know, we can't give a simple explanation why is that with flu, neither can we with COVID, but the prediction that COVID would, would take off and get much easier uh, have a much easier ride and spread more rapidly in the winter has has been borne out in practice. Um, I've got a message here from Keith who's uh, texted or tweeted in rather a question for you. The common cold versus the COVID virus. Would current measures reduce the likelihood of the common cold and which is the most transmittable? Well, yes. I mean, there are people still getting colds and you know there are subtle differences between all these viruses. Who has them? Which age groups get them? Which age groups are good at spreading, as I've just said, with the flu? Mm. And, and I, I think that comes into it. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, this is where the, the mathematical models will have to get to work and work out exactly what factors have been the important factors in terms of determining whether a particular virus spread by the respiratory route. Uh, because a lot of it depends on other factors like how much virus does an individual excrete and basically how long do they uh, how long are they infectious and all that kind of yeah. thing and how important things are these fomites which are you know surfaces that you touch and all that we don't really know uh, enough about covid to know exactly what are the really important things there uh, and we we still have a bit of mysteries sometimes with common colds. Mm. After all, we had a, used to have a common cold research unit on Salisbury Plain. Closed that many years ago because we thought, well, the, the problem is so trivial, let's not bother about <laughs> doing the science on it. So the science of the common cold, is there are still many unanswered questions there. But certainly I know from personal experience and friends and so on that colds are still buzzing around, unlike the flu. And that's a very interesting scientific question. It doesn't help us very much with COVID, except that we know that COVID has got common in the winter, as, as was predicted. Yes, right. And I presume that common cold virus or whatever it is, germs, actually live out on, on, on surfaces in the same way that COVID can. Well, yes. I mean, some common cold viruses are more resistant to that. And COVID is, is quite a delicate virus in the sense that once it's dried, it's dead, whereas some common cold viruses, not all, because some common cold viruses are coronaviruses, mm. quite different, uh, you know, quite different from COVID, but they're, 
and and they're quite sort of um, easily affected by by drying and ultraviolet light. Whereas other cold viruses are much tougher, a bit more like the uh, you know the, the old enemy, the norovirus, which mm. is very 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 tough indeed. That is, and, you don't want to get that anytime on soon. surfaces for, for for weeks and months. I haven't actually heard of a norovirus this winter. Normally there is one, but that may be because nobody's at school. Because I always remember when I had young children, there was always somebody with it uh, in a primary school. Yes, that's right. Well, of course, you know, it, 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 it's been a big challenge for the for the health services, norovirus, because once you get it into a hospital ward, it can spread like wildfire. But obviously, well, my guess is that um, the, the sort of things that we've been doing to prevent COVID spreading in hospitals have also spread have also had a negative effect on the virus, on, on, on norovirus. And, of course, one classical norovirus situation was uh, cruise liners. Well, there aren't any cruise liners cruising at the moment, so that's one area of the norovirus is sort of happy time that is not there. So, you know, there are factors like that one has to bear in mind with, with the norovirus that... Uh, Basically, you know, that, that's also been affected by the, the hospital. But, of course, the hospital situation is, is, has been turned upside down by the coronavirus because so many patients are in hospital with that and relatively fewer patients with other more traditional conditions that hospitals specialise in, like cancer treatment and treating and heart disease and all that kind of thing. Absolutely right. Professor Hugh Pennington, thank you very much indeed. Emeritus Professor of Bacteriology at Aberdeen University, talking to us about the common cold uh, norovirus as well, which is a really nasty thing. Uh, But also he's got the right idea, in my view, uh, that you cannot expect COVID to just disappear altogether. However, it may well do. And whatever it is that the vaccine does for the moment uh, should help that happen. And I think that's what we should all hope that is the case, because then by the time we get to uh, Easter, we've already been told last week by Boris Johnson uh, that by the time we get to March the 8th, it could be the schools are opening. And by the time we get to the end of March, it could be uh, that things are looking an awful lot better than they are now. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is that time of the day because, of course, we just had the news at 12 at 30. Uh, we will be filming Plank of the Week later on uh, this week, tomorrow, actually, uh, with Dawn Neesman, Kevin O'Sullivan. Uh, there's already quite a few people who have put their names forward inadvertently by doing something particularly plankish. Uh, and I'm about to do something now which you perhaps might say uh, is potentially exactly that. Emma Louise Rose is a teacher, team leader at Twinkle, still a current teacher as well. Uh, we're actually going to do algebra. can't believe I'm saying it. Emma Louise, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Hiya. Yeah, hopefully, it, I think it's one of those things that fills people with dread. So well, hopefully if you are homeschooling and you see the word algebra, this uh, this might help you calm down a little bit. Yeah, do you know, I mean, I didn't have a problem when I was doing it at school, but my, my kids' algebra now uh, is so complicated that I haven't got a clue. Um, and I pretty much gave up. My, my, my 16-year-old, by the time he was about 14, 15, it was already getting to the point where I couldn't really help him with it. So I hope you're not going to get too complicated. No, no, we'll we'll stay. I've I've got a few things prepared, so we'll do a little bit of um, sort of maybe year six, so yes. upper end of primary, okay, pitched, and then uh, that that should, that should work all right. <laughs> so tell us about the origins of algebra, because I think a lot of people, are, some of the, I mean, comedians always used to say, "What was the point of algebra? I never have to use it in real life." So what is the point of it? I'm confident with this one. I'm confident that I can tell you that you use algebra probably more commonly than most of the other maths that you learn at school. And that's because although we might not be writing actual 
algebraic expressions, which are the ones that use, you know, the A plus uh, 3C equals X type thing every day. That is what we are doing in our heads. So I've got some real life applications as well. So for example, this is one of our questions or one of our twinkle uh, resources actually. And it's, um, there's a painter and decorator charging 16 pounds for every hour that she works and she offers a discount of five pounds for each job. What she's literally doing in her head is 16H minus five. And just because she's not writing that down doesn't mean that she's not using those skills to work out her end price. Right, okay. So, I mean, if you hadn't invented algebra, um, what would have happened though, for example? We'd have probably just used something else. So the whole point of the letter is that the letter is used as a variable. So that painter and decorator could change what she charges per hour right. and the formula would still be the same. We'd just change the the 16 to whatever her hourly rate was. Right. But it means, that, it means that we can keep the same formula and just change the bit that changes. Right. So it's really about just almost standardising something, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've got an example for you. Do you want to have a, should we have a look? Yes, go on. I wonder if you think, I'm going to hold it up as well. So if anybody's watching, they'll be able to see it, but I'll read it out. All right. So I wonder if anybody thinks that in their day-to-day -day life, they might have used uh, 5B plus 3A plus C equals P. And then we've got X equals N minus P. Well, uh, I know you're going to tell me I probably have without realising it, but that has completely thrown me that. See, it's made more complicated by the letters, but actually, what if I told you that um, I go to the supermarket right. and I buy five bananas yeah. and I buy three apples right. and I buy a packet of crumpets yeah. and that gives me the price of my total shop. Okay. And so, for example, if my bananas were 17p, my apples were 35 and a packet of crumpets was 95 pence, I'd do five times 17 right. and I'd do... Three times 35, and then I'd add my 95, which would give me a total price here. Right. Okay. If anybody wants to work that out, it's 285. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of money for a very bizarre lunch, I have to say. Well, there comes the next step. So it's 285 pence. Right. Of course, then you've got the extra stack of changing that into pounds. And then X would be your change, which right. might be the note that you pay with minus the price that you've used. So although you haven't written this down mm. when you've made your shopping list and you've been, you haven't been walking around the supermarket thinking 5B plus 3A equals, you haven't been doing that, but right. you have. You just don't think of it like that. You this. just don't think of it like that. And do people do that in their heads because they've been taught algebra then, do you think? Or is it just something that, that, that you would do anyway? It's something that you do anyway, but algebra helps you... Uh, helps you develop that skill so we think of like the earliest algebra you do in school as possibly being something with a missing number so right. five plus blank equals seven and a very you know sort of a year one child might be working out what that blank space is but actually you do it a lot earlier than that you see ch children when they're playing they might have three toys in front of them and they misplace one they know straight away that something is missing they probably know that they've misplaced one toy mm. just from the fact that they can see two Right. Okay. And at what sort of age would you say children should be taught algebra? Because I've I've always spoken to a lot of a lot of teachers who say that kid the younger the kids are when they learn stuff, the better really. Yeah, well, I think there's a big push at the minute on kind of getting that the depth of learning. So I know I teach year one at the minute, but I have taught um, year six. Now, year six do do algebra. The unit is called algebra. Mm. They will be learning algebraic expressions with our numbers and our letters mix. But actually, for my small children in my class, they do sit and they do do missing numbers and they might do word problems. So if this person has three of these and this person have two of these, mm. how many did they have all together? And that's basic algebra. Right. So it, 
it, it does come in quite early, earlier than than you think, I would imagine. Okay, because I mean, some of the stuff that, uh, that that worries people, I would imagine, is when you start introducing sort of brackets and things. But, but brackets have a particular use in algebra, don't they? Yeah, brackets make things easier. Brackets tell you, you know, sort that bit out first. You can work that bit out as a chunk. Right, and you work out the bit inside the bracket, don't you? Yeah, work out the bits inside the brackets, and then it's um, uh, your multiplication and your division first. Come always come before um, addition and subtraction as right. well. And what about x and y? Because they obviously appear more than most things in in algebra. Is that just because of the that's the way it is? Yeah, they're just used as examples for variables. And if you find it tricky, if you read something that said what is x, put something in the way of x. So go, oh well, instead of thinking I've got five x, add however many x put something else in for X. So I've got five tennis balls yeah, and, and it suddenly becomes a bit more tangible. Right. Okay. And X is always the same if it's in one algebraic equation, presumably, is it? Yes. If it's in one, if it's in one um, expression, X would always be the same. The same letter would always represent the same number. Okay. And, and I mean, I think that was what threw me about your apples and, uh, uh, and crumpets because I've never seen anything really other than X and Y or much anyway. I mean, I don't well, do. Class, I don't do a lot of algebra now. Find, the classic is find X, isn't it? That's yes. what they always say. Find X. Mm. Yes, and you don't normally see A or C or or P. You know. I think we come up against them quite a bit in some of our algebra see? work, but yeah, X and Y are definitely the ones you see the most. Okay, so if you're a parent listening to this and you've got a, a kid who's a bit puzzled by the whole algebraic scenario. What's the best way of finding your way through it, if, if you like? You know, because I mean, a lot of parents struggle with all sorts of questions they get asked by their children. You're like, why is the sky blue? Because you know, well, it is. You know, how, what would you say to a parent who's who has to try and get a kid into it? I would make sure that they knew that it does have a purpose. I've just shown you we are using it, even if we don't think we are. And some children learn differently, so some will really grasp that formula. So there's a there's a set formula to it, and that's how you work it out. So you know, if if you're working on something a bit trickier, so um, I'll leave you with this. I won't make you do it now. All right. If, if, <laughs> if anybody fancies finding X, all right. I'll see five, if I write this one down. Yeah, go. On. <laughs> I've got five X minus six equals three yeah. X minus eight, and at the end, I, I'll tell you now. X equals minus one, but I wonder if anybody knows hey. how I got that. X equals minus one. Yeah, <laughs> but if you have a child who's particularly good so at knowing, well, well, hang on a minute. What's five times minus one then? Uh, five times minus one is uh, minus five. All right. So minus five minus six. Blimey! See, that's already thrown me. That I'm already negative territory. No we'll idea what doing that, We'll have some children that are really good at remembering those kind of patterns of how to get things like that. But if this is something that absolutely would throw your child, this is obviously a little bit trickier. This is not primary level. Um, but for primary school children, we can put real things in the place. Like I say, put the bananas and the apples in there if it helps them out. Make right. it into a work problem if it helps them out. I mean, you could have given me one that wasn't minus something. I mean, you know, that was cruel. This is why people think algebra teachers are cruel. Would you like me to talk you through it or do you want me yeah, to leave you with it? No, go on, tell okay. me. <laughs> okay, so um, we have uh, 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I'm having to read this backwards. So I, right. I, I want extra credit for this because I'm okay. looking at the reverse on the screen. I've got 5x uh, minus 6 is right. the same as 3x minus 8. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away 3x from both sides because I'm going to try to get rid of as much as I can. Okay. So I'm going to chop the 3x off here and off here, which leaves me with 2x minus 6 on this side. Yes. And it just leaves me with minus 8 on I this see. side. So yes. it tells me that 2x minus 6 is the same as minus 8. And then I'm going to add six to both sides to get rid of this minus six mm. which gives me two x equals minus two yeah and if i know that two x is minus two then one x yeah is see that makes one. sense now, now now you're talking so you can, the great thing about algebra though is you just take things out if you can't yeah Lots of them are really step-by-step. Step. So if you have a child that's struggling with it, there is always a step-by-step step guide to whatever you're doing. Great. Well, that's good because now, now we've finished on a high because now I understand it. Thank you. And uh, your brain worked out before lunch. Yeah, I know. I must, I must <laughs> go and get something to eat. Uh, Emma-Louise Rose, teacher, team leader at Twinkle Algebra uh, for, uh, for dummies like me. They've actually managed to make it sensible for me. That's good. I like all that. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.